Please turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, this morning we come to the last section of the second chapter. I'll begin the reading in verse 18. Please give your attention to God's word. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun, because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. About ten years ago, there was an English band called Hard Fi, Nobody over here has ever heard of them, I don't think. But they had a song that was really popular for a while in England called Living for the Weekend. And it not only became a big hit in Great Britain, but it was also used in a number of commercials because it was such an accurate reflection of what advertisers want to say to potential customers. And and particularly, I think, in the realm of alcohol. So here are some of the lyrics from that song. Oh, I've been working for a week. I'm tired. Yeah, I've been working a week and I'm just living for the weekend. Get, got some money, I just got paid. Got some money and I can't wait. At 6 o'clock, I'm out of here. Working all the time, work is such a bind. Got some money to spend, living for the weekend. When it gets too much, I live for the rush. Got some money to spend, living for the weekend. Now, that's not great art. But it does reflect our culture. It reflects the mindset of so many in our culture towards the work that they do. I did read an interview with the lead singer from that group, and he was asked about that song, and this is what he said. He said, it's a song about when you've been working all week, duh, in a job, <laughs> in a job where you don't like or enjoy doing it. And it gets to Friday, and all that frustration you've been through all week is released. The money you've earned, you spend it to get rid of all that stress, you let your hair down, your life's your own again, and you're free. And then he ends it with this interesting question. Are you living to work or working to live? Are you living to work or working to live? 
thought, wow, that is a very relevant question, especially for this chapter, chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes. Are you living to work or are you working to live? Ecclesiastes, as we've seen over the last few weeks, is about searching for meaning and purpose under the sun. The search that Koheleth, or preacher, or teacher, or as I call him, Professor Q, this, this search that he's entered into, he's purposely set the boundary at the sun and says, I'm going to try to find meaning and purpose from what I can see, taste, touch, feel, experience in life under the sun. Professor Q believes in a God, but this God doesn't seem to be directly involved in his life, at least not in a way that he can understand. And so that's the worldview he self-consciously limits himself to and then pursues everything possible with all the wealth and all the power. He's a king. He writes as a king, maybe Solomon. And so he has all that power and authority, and he enters into this exhaustive search. And we've seen over the last couple weeks, first of all, he focused his search in the areas of wisdom, knowledge and wisdom, living for wisdom. And then set, and he got to the end of that search, and his conclusion was, all is vanity, all is meaningless, all is soap bubbles. There, it's beautiful while it lasts, but poof, and it's gone. Then, last week, we saw how he shifted his focus from the pleasures of the mind, wisdom and knowledge, to pleasures of the flesh, physical pleasures that we can experience in life. And so we saw how he chased after, with great energy and resources, he chased after wine and women and song and wealth and big estates. And again, his conclusion at the end of his search was, everything's vanity, everything's meaningless, everything's soap bubbles. In this section, he shifts his focus again. Okay, knowledge and wisdom won't do it. Physical pleasure won't do it. I'm not going to find meaning and purpose in either one of those areas. Work. Let me try living for work. And see if I can find meaning and purpose there. Well, that seems like a promising area, doesn't it? I mean, if you really want to find meaning and purpose, you don't have to stay within the confines of the church. You can go out there on the street and people will say, well, yeah, your work should give you a sense of meaning and purpose in life. What's one of the first things that you ask somebody or somebody asks you when you first meet them? What do you do for a living? What kind of work do you do? Do you realize what that, if that's the most important, if that's the number one question you ask somebody when you first meet them, you realize what that says. That their identity, their meaning, their purpose must be wrapped in in what they do for a living, what their work is. That's how we view people. That's how we view ourselves. And so this is such a relevant issue for us to wrestle with. Again, Professor Q does not leave us waiting for his conclusion. It's amazing to me. He doesn't, he's not, he doesn't live for tension at all. He doesn't like any kind of dramatic tension. He hits you with his conclusion right before, at the very beginning of his report, before he even talks about what he did in all of his search. He says in the very first verse we read, in verse 18, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun. He didn't find meaning and purpose in the work that he devoted himself to do. He didn't find his meaning and purpose there. What's interesting, though, is that he doesn't complain about the same kind of things that you and I complain about when we talk about our jobs. When we get together with our buddies and complain about our jobs, we could tend to complain about things like lazy coworkers and harsh bosses and poor management 
and boredom and lack of resources. He doesn't mention any of those things. I'm rather fascinated by the reasons he gives for why we can't find ultimate meaning and purpose in our work. The first reason he gives is that we're going to retire. We're going to, and the word retire literally means to go away. So I mean all kinds of retiring. I mean retiring because of advanced age or retiring because of physical infirmity or retiring because of death. But we're all going to go away one day. And again, we're going to see this every time. Every one of these searches, death becomes a big issue. He says the fact that we're going to retire from the work that we're doing by one of those means, the result of that is that our work is ultimately meaningless to us. It cannot be the source of meaning and purpose in our lives if we're going to walk away from it someday and at that moment, everything's going to be meaningless. All of our accomplishments, all of our awards, all of our reputation, all our wealth, it's not going to be of any benefit to us at the end of the road. I went to um, my son's graduation ceremony at the Bryce Jordan Center yesterday for State High. And I have sat through so many graduations. I've been through several of my own. I've been through all of my children's graduations. I was on the school board in Philadelphia for a while where my children went to school. And so I, went, I had to go. I was required to go to every graduation every summer. And so I have heard literally dozens upon dozens of graduation speeches. And yesterday's speeches were good. They were good speeches. They were entertaining, well-given, well-delivered. But I knew what they were going to say before they said it. Because every graduation speech says the same thing. Pursue your dreams, work hard, enjoy your accomplishments, make an impact on the world. Accomplish great things. And I just can't tell you, after having heard that, knowing what they were going to say in fine, fine speeches, I've been spending weeks studying Ecclesiastes. And I just want to stand up in my seat and say, that's not all there is. And if, that, if you're telling these kids that's all there is, they're going to end up the same place that Q ends up. Someday, before they know it, it's going to pass, the time's going to pass pretty quickly until they get there. They're going to stand there and say, all the accomplishments, all the awards, all the reputation, it's all meaningless. It's of no benefit to me in the, in the big picture. So that's the first thing that he complains about, is that no matter how hard he works, no matter how much he accomplishes, one day it's all going to be of no meaning and purpose to his life. Secondly, do you notice... What he really complains about, he mentions it twice, he complains about the fact that somebody else is going to take over for him when he retires from the job. Verse 18 and 19, he says, Seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool, yet he will be master of all for which I toiled. He's just infuriated by the injustice of that. That he's going to walk away from everything he's done and somebody else is going to take over his responsibilities. It's bad enough that at the end of the road, all these things that we've accomplished have no benefit, no meaning and purpose to us, but there's a very good chance that somebody's going to come along behind us and screw up everything that we did. They're going to take over our responsibilities. They're going to, they're going to inherit all of our, our resources, our wealth, all the benefits, and they're going to fritter it away in some way. Think about the father of the prodigal son. We always focus on the two sons, but think about the father for a second. He worked his whole life to build up this significant inheritance, 
And then he hands it over. He had the, the rare privilege of watching what his son does after he hands over the inheritance. And the son goes out there and wastes it all in a matter of days, weeks, on wine, women, and song. How hard that would be for a father to watch that happen after all his work. I had a little taste of this last year. I was, if you don't know, I was almost 20 years pastoring a, a church in the Philadelphia suburbs. And it was hard to leave a work that you've poured your heart, your soul, your blood, sweat, and tears into for all that time. And after I left, I consciously stayed away for a couple of years because we pastors do that. We don't want to interfere with a new pastor coming in and getting established. And so I'd been gone away a couple of years, and last summer we went to visit. And it was just interesting to me, the, 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 the stress, the, the anxiety I felt going to visit. Because I was going back to look at what the new pastor and the elders that, that I left there, what had they done with all the work that we had worked together on for all those years? Just a little nervous about everything that worked so hard for. Was it still there? Was it still thriving? And, and I was greatly reassured. It was, it was a great time seeing how God is still working and blessing. That church is strong and healthy and growing. So I was all nervous and anxious for nothing. But that feeling is something that we all should sense that, you know, I'm going to leave everything I've worked so hard for. I'm going to leave it. And somebody's going to come along behind me. And notice he's worried that a fool is going to get a hold of it. And biblically speaking, there's a whole lot more fools out there than there are wise people. So the likelihood that you're going to leave your work in the hands of a fool is pretty doggone high. And we're talking, remember last week we said that this is probably, this king that's writing Ecclesiastes was probably Solomon, a good chance it was Solomon. Remember who Solomon was? The wisest person who ever lived on the planet. So what were the chances that somebody wiser than he was, or as wise as he was, were going to follow him in all the work that he had built up in the kingdom of Israel? There was no chance of it happening. And you remember who did follow him? Rehoboam. And what did Rehoboam do with this kingdom that Solomon had built with his father? He lost ten-twelfths of it. So, if it is Solomon writing this, his fears were well-founded. What if a fool comes along behind me and ruins everything that I poured my life into? But that is a very realistic possibility for any of you sitting here this morning. So, you're not going to find your meaning and purpose in your work. Because not only when you get to the end of the road, it's not going to have any benefit to you, you aren't even going to leave benefit behind long-term because somebody's going to come along behind you and ruin what you've done or waste it. And then the third reason that Q says that you can't find meaning and purpose in work is because the stress of work is inescapable and deadly. We can't even enjoy our work just in the present. I mean, okay, let's stop thinking about the future. Let's just enjoy it for today. But there's so much stress in the workday. So even the good things that you do are so saturated in stress and anxiety that you can't enjoy it. He says in verses 22 and 23, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night, his heart does not rest. Psychological studies say that workplace stress is the major source of stress in our life. And they've broken it down. One of the studies uh, broke it down in this way. 46% of that stress is due to workload. 28% is due to people issues. 20% is due to juggling work and personal lives, and 6% is due to job insecurity. Put all that together, and that's a lot of weight on your shoulders every day as you work. Not only 
are the days full of sorrow and vexation, Q says. But we take the stress home with us because he says, even in the night, his heart does not rest. I like the literal Hebrew there. I wish they'd translated directly into English because in the literal Hebrew it says, even in the night, his heart does not lie down. So while your body lies down, your heart doesn't. And so you don't really rest. And you know what that feels like as you bear that stress and vexation and sorrow from the work of the day. So our work stresses us out until we die. And then when we die, all the benefit and meaning and purpose to us is gone. And probably some fool is going to come along behind us and mess up what we did anyway. That's the message here in chapter 2. That's why you can't find meaning and purpose ultimately in your work. Now, if you, I, I don't want to skip over verses 24 to 26 because it seems like in a first reading there that he shifts his tone a little bit. Matter of fact, a lot of commentators, and I'll admit to you right now, they may be right. There are a lot of commentators, scholars, students of the word that would say that what the writer does here, and we'll see it again several times in the, in the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, what he does is he, he kind of steps out of character character of Professor Q. He kind of steps out for a minute, and he kind of looks at the big picture and says, you know what? There is meaning and purpose in work because of God being in the picture, because of these things that God does, because of God sovereignly being involved. But I've come to the tentative conclusion that that's a misinterpretation of what, that he's not actually stepping out of character, that he's actually continuing to speak as Professor Q, and what he's really saying is And let me read the beginning to you again. There is nothing better for a person. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil or his work. If you change that that translation slightly, not changing the original, but just changing the English translation of it to say, here's the best you can do is to enjoy what you eat and drink and what you can get out of your work. What What I think the tone is here is one of resignation of saying, this is the best you can hope for, is that if God gives you the ability to enjoy physical pleasures, good food, good drink, and to get some joy and and satisfaction out of your work, then carpe diem, seize the day, seize the moment, enjoy it while it lasts, but keep in mind it's not going to last very long. It's all ultimately soap bubbles. It's interesting, in the early service, I have to share this, in the early service, I didn't know this, uh, a young couple came up to me and the, and the, the, the bride, or the, the, the young woman, said to me, I have to explain to you why I laugh every time you use that analogy of meaninglessness and comparing it to soap bubbles. There's something that's beautiful and mesmerizing, but poof, and it's gone, and there's nothing there. I said, I laugh every time you say that because she's a, a student, at, a grad student, I assume, at, at Penn State, and she's studying how to make soap bubbles last longer. What are the chances? (laughs) You never know who you're going to be speaking to in this congregation. I did say to her, though, you have to admit that you don't have any hope of ever making them last forever, right? And she said, yes, you're right, you're right. Um, But that is his perspective. He's still saying that that's all that that, uh, work ultimately amounts to, is meaninglessness and purposelessness in this life. But then... He's not only saying, enjoy it for the moment, realize it's not going to last forever, but then what about verse 26? Because verse 26 really doesn't seem to fit here, because he says, you know, basically, God's in heaven, and God 
rewards the righteous and gives them satisfaction in these things, but then he punishes the sinner, and the sinner ends up gathering up things for the righteous. Now, if you take that out of context and put it in a different portion of Scripture, then you can read it straightforward and, I think, directly apply that. But it really seems way out of context here for him to bring that into the picture. I think it's because the English translation isn't the best translation. Again, just translating it back to the original Hebrew, let me read it to you this way and see if you see it in a bit different light. The one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the one who doesn't please God, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. In other words, I could shorten that to say, God favors some and doesn't favor others with joy in these things. And so if you happen to be one whom God favors, enjoy it for the moment, enjoy it while it lasts, but it's not going to last forever. And when you take it out of the sense of the righteous and the sinners, which the, the, the original language doesn't demand that you translate those words that way. If you take it more in the sense someone that God is fa- God favors and then somebody who God doesn't favor, now you realize he's just re- referring to the fact that God is sovereign and he distributes these good gifts according to his sovereign will. And it's plainly obvious to us that the righteous aren't always blessed with these things and the sinners aren't always cursed in these things, that it's often the opposite in this fallen world under the sun. And so that, in a sense, then, that fits much better with the context here, that that's what he's saying, that God is involved in the sense that he distributes things, but it's left up to us, and he, he, he favors one and he doesn't favor another, and we can't control that. So if you happen to be someone that he favors... Enjoy your work, enjoy the blessings of your work, but realize it's not going to last for long. So that brings us to that last, final, ultimate conclusion. This is also vanity and the striving after the wind. How do you go to work tomorrow knowing that? All of it's vanity and striving after the wind. Well, that's why, as I keep saying, the reason that this book is in the Bible is to point us to the rest of the Bible. The reason that Ecclesiastes is here is to say, if you seek your meaning and purpose in life under the sun, you will never find it. You need to look above and beyond the sun. You need to look into the spiritual realm. You need to look to God to find meaning and purpose in life. As it relates to all these individual things, things like wisdom and knowledge and pleasure and work, Last week we saw that we find the true purpose in the pleasures in our life, the physical pleasures, the things we talked about last week, good food, the the wonders of creation, the beauty of the arts. We enjoy those things. It's good to enjoy those things, but not to find our meaning and purpose in them. But we enjoy them as they reflect the goodness and the power and the glory of God. That when we enjoy pleasurable things in this life, if it points us to the one who created them and provided them, then those things in life are, do- are serving their purpose. Everything is to point us to the glory of God, which is the real and ultimate pleasure, the only pleasure that satisfies for eternity. So we must see work as a gift from God that is meant to direct us to God. And then we will be able to feel that there's meaning in what we do every day of our lives. You see, work was, was given to us as a gift originally. As Tom mentioned earlier, work was part of the Garden of Eden before sin ever came into the picture. The Bible teaches us that our God is a working God. Jesus said, I am working and my Father is working even to this day. 
God is a working God. God finds eternal satisfaction and pleasure in doing his works. And so when he created man and woman in his image, he made us to be workers. And that's why slothfulness, laziness, sluggardness, that's why, you know, that's why it's such a, a denial of who we are and what we are created to be. We are to be workers. It's a gift that's given to us so that we can enjoy the pleasures of God. Robert Banks wrote a book called Faith Goes to Work. And I like the way, there's many books that are written about how a Christian should view their work, but I like this one. I like his approach to it. He kind of approached it from a theological perspective and then gets into the practical. And what he did in the beginning is he, he basically goes through and looks at all the passages in Scripture that talk about how God works and how we view that work. And he, he divides God's work up into six categories. The first category is God's redemptive work. In other words, saving and reconciling, his redemptive work in light of the reality of sin. Secondly, he talks about his creative work, and that one's obvious. God is a creator. It's essential to who he is, and so he must create. Thirdly, his providential work. In other words, how God maintains order in this universe that he's created and how he provides for every aspect of that universe. That's his providential work. And then he talks about his justice work. God acting in justice. And so you, you think of him laying down the law and holding people accountable and acting as judge. And then he talks about God's compassionate work. Because of sin, there's the effects of sin. And so God has compassion upon his whole creation. And those works of, of compassion are one aspect of, another aspect of God's work. And then finally, his revelatory work. God works to reveal truth to us. God works to reveal himself to us. And then what's great about this book is that Mr. Blake then turns around, or Mr. Banks turns around and says, every one of our jobs, I don't care what you do in this life, every one of your jobs fits into one of those categories. And so then he lists things like for redemptive work, he, he points to the work of pastors and elders, obviously, as directly doing redemptive work to work towards reconciliation and healing the effects of sin but also counselors and other people that work to, br- to be peacemakers, to bring reconciliation. Then he talks about creative work, and that one's easy. Anybody who's a musician or a painter or a writer or a carpenter or an architect, you're in the, creating, or you're in, you're in the creative realm of God's work. You're reflecting God's work by what you create. And then he talks about providential work in terms of maintaining order and purpose in life. And, he, and, and so he talks about mechanics, Plumbers, IT specialists, farmers, businessmen, firemen, they're in the work of providence. And then he talks about justice work, another one, easy one, policemen, judges, lawyers, legislators, compassionate work, doctors, nurses, social workers, relief workers. And then he talks about revelatory work, certainly preachers like me but also anybody who educates insofar as they educate in the truth. Any scientist who studies this creation in order to reveal the glory of God that's in what he has made, they're doing revelatory work. You see, his point is that, I, I assume the reason you're here this morning is because you want to be godly. And to be godly, you must be a worker because God is a God who works. And we're made in his image. 
And so not only do we glorify him by working, but we reflect his glory as we do the kinds of works that he's doing. And matter of fact, not only are we imitating his work in all these areas, but we're actually working with him in all these areas. We are co-laboring with God as he does these kinds of works in all these different areas. So let me ask you, do you live to work or do you work to live? What is the right answer to that question? Do you live to work or do you work to live? What's the right answer? The right answer is neither. I do not live to work. My work is not where I find my meaning and purpose in life. But I also don't work just so that I can go out and live on the weekends. I don't see work as a necessary evil that I have to get through during the week so that I can really go and live on the weekend. Both of those are wrong. What's the right answer then? Well, let me challenge you. Try this, and I guarantee you it'll create some awkward social moments. But the next time that somebody comes up to you and says, you just met them, and they say, what do you do for a living? Here's your answer. I live to see, savor, and show the glory of God in all that I do. That's the answer. That's what you live for. And if that's what you live for, what you'll find is it transforms the work that you do. Doug Sharp in his adult Sunday school class this morning had a wonderful illustration about work in the sense of what we're really looking for when we're training our kids how to work. You know, we want to train them how to do jobs. We want to train them to be faithful in doing jobs. But we really haven't succeeded unless we teach our kids to joyfully do their jobs for the right reason. And he used the illustration like, you know, how would you feel if you came home from work one day and your son came up to you and he said, Dad, you know, I was out in the garage fixing some things and I noticed that the, 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 gas, the can, gas can was almost empty. Is it okay if I get the keys to the car and run up to the gas station and fill the gas can up and then, so that I can then mow the lawn when I'm done? You know, how would you feel if your son said that, you know? And he said, his response was, I don't think that child exists. But... <laughs> But he, he was making a valid point that so often in parenting, you're just happy if you, if you coerce and, and, and nag and urge and get your kid to do the job, just to get the job done. But your job as a parent isn't done until they're doing it for the right reason, and they're doing it out of love for God and love for you, and you've begun to teach them the mindset that Scripture teaches us about work. The sad thing is, most of us as adults have never gotten to that point. That we're not doing our work for the right reasons. We live to see, savor, and show the glory of Jesus Christ. And you realize what frees you up to do that is the gospel. Because we don't work to live eternally either. We live eternally by grace. The work that our lives is built upon and based upon is the work, the redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He did everything that needed to be done. And not only did he take away the penalty of our sins by dying in our place on the cross, but he actually gave us the record of perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at us, because of our faith in Christ, he sees perfect workers. 
who have always done the right thing for the right reason because we're robed in the righteousness of Christ. And you know what's even better than that? Is that because he sees us that way, we are reconciled to him and we are adopted into his family and because we're adopted into his family, we are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ of the kingdom. We have that inheritance by grace. It's all waiting for us. Nothing can take it away. So we're not working for any of that. Christ works so that we can have that. That frees us up to work for joy, to work for the glory of God, to work for the sake of others. We are free to enjoy work as a gift now, just like everything else in our lives, as it was originally intended to be, as an opportunity to reflect God's glory in doing the kind of work that he does, and an opportunity to work with God to accomplish his purposes, and an opportunity to love others and stop being so doggone selfish. Psalm 127 was written by Solomon. That's what the title says, which is interesting because the same Solomon who very well may have written Ecclesiastes. Psalm 127, I'm sure you're familiar with it, says this. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. You see, that's how you can, when your body lies down at night, your heart can lie down too. That's how it happens, is if you understand that it's really God building and using, and you're working with him. You you know, you're working like the Lord, you're working with the Lord, and you're working for the Lord. And so when the day's over, your failures are forgiven, and your inheritance is secure, and you can go to sleep in the peace of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the work that you've given us to do. Forgive us for looking to our work for meaning and purpose. Forgive us for looking to our work as a means of salvation. Teach us what it means to really rest in Christ. Teach us to live for your glory and not for a paycheck, to not live for the weekend, to not live for earthly rewards. Teach us to live for Christ, for his glory, for the enjoyment of his presence forever. Thank you for that gift of grace. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.